The Guardian. Hello, this is the Business Podcast. I'm Heather Stewart. Coming up this week, exile on Main Street, why the retail sector faces a make-or-break Easter. As takings at the tills reach a 16-year low, the British Retail Consortium warns of a crisis in consumer spending. Also this week, why one ratings agency is warning it could downgrade US debt from its gold-plated AAA status. The gap between the Republicans and the Democrats seems to be pretty huge, and there's only about uh, 18 months to go until an election. Probably the smart bet to make is that some sort of deal will, will be done that will prevent a downgrade, but actually, you know, we'll revisit this issue after the election. And we investigate the gaping hole in the budgets of hundreds of British charities. It's what many in the sector are calling a perfect storm. Back in the boom years, hitting the shops on the bank holiday weekend became as much an Easter tradition as hot cross buns. But with consumers facing the worst squeeze on their incomes for decades, it's not surprising that retailers are struggling. Sales are at their weakest for 16 years, according to the latest survey. So what does this weekend hold for retailers? And will trading conditions continue to be tough over the next 12 months? Joining me to discuss this, I have in the studio, from The Guardian's business desk, Zoe Wood, and on the line from the British Retail Consortium, Richard Dodd. Welcome to you both. Um, Richard, we were once famously a nation of shopkeepers, but how important now is the retail sector for the British economy? Well, retailing is tremendously important. Of course, it's uh, a key barometer for the state of the overall economy and also tremendously important in its own right. It employs 2.9 million people directly, obviously supports uh, lots more people than that. And it's uh, it's something like um, 7 or 8% of overall GDP. So the state of retail matters in those two different senses. And there's no question that at the moment things are really, really difficult. And that's because customers feel that their own budgets are under enormous pressure. There's this great onslaught of rising costs, these worries about um, jobs and about falling house prices. And all of that is leading people to be really reluctant to spend where they don't have to. And Zoe, we've had a string of individual firms, haven't we, telling us how how difficult things are at the moment on the high street. What's been happening in in the last few weeks? Yes, we've had one of the most depressing quarters the sector's seen probably in recent memory. We've had a string of uh, retailers warning that profits are going to be lower than expected. Household names like Dixon's, Comet, uh, Halford's, Mothercare, they're all saying that we're hurting because consumers are holding back. They just don't have the confidence to spend in the way that they used to. And and is there a a danger of another Woolworths scenario? Are other big names vanishing from the high street that we've all been familiar with for years? I don't know if it's going to be as extreme as as that this time round. I think what we're seeing is the the small, weak players at the edges of the sector falling away. Last week we saw Audbins go into administration. That sector's been challenged anyway because of the growth of the supermarkets. And I think this is is possibly the start of a, a trend that we'll see this year, and it's going to be the smaller high street names um, that are going to go under. And, and Richard, it was the BRC figures, wasn't it, that showed us that, that spending is as weak as it has been for 16 years on, on the high street. What are the, you, you've talked about consumer budgets, but you know what, what are the kind of factors that you're, you're looking at to explain that? Yeah, I mean, we actually saw, we saw the biggest fall in sales that we've recorded year on year, fall in sales that we've recorded in the 16 years we've been doing that survey. So the worst results since 1995. And, you know, that's interesting because that is, of course, 
even worse than any of the figures that came out during the period of the recession or any of the the figures that came out during that period when we had that shocking retail bloodbath that led to Woolworths and MFI and all those others going to the wall. So I suppose it's interesting that in a sense things are worse now and yet I don't think we're seeing retailers failing in the same way or in the same numbers as was, was the case back then and I you know I guess that's because those that were vulnerable have gone already and the ones who are left have uh, improved what they're doing they've reduced their costs they've improved their efficiency and they're a bit you know many of them most of them are a bit more able to battle through than was the case a couple of years ago and does the timing of Easter make a difference because it's always difficult to see what's happening from year to year isn't it when, when Easter jumps about yeah there's no question that the the fact that we have had most of the Easter spending in March last year, whilst it's coming a lot later, it's all coming in April this year, is part of the reason why we had those really terrible figures for March. But by no means the only explanation or the main explanation, because of course there have been many occasions in the previous 15 or 16 years when we've had that same situation of Easter moving and influencing the year-on-year comparisons, and yet we've never had a figure as bad as this one. So, you know, the, the, the fundamental issue here is people being very, very reluctant to spend. And Zoe, how important is, is the Easter period now, do you think? How important is it for, for retailers to have a, a sort of good month or so ahead? I mean, I think it's probably important for both retailers and consumers. I think, you know, the confidence indices have shown a very worrying trend and I think there's a concern that that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think a decent Easter would be, could create a bit of a feel-good fe- uh, factor for the sector and I think that would give retailers the confidence, you know, to keep going with opening programmes and to create jobs, which is what we need to happen. And Richard, it feels when you walk down the high street that there are are sales on everywhere almost all the time at the moment. Is is that a strategy that retailers are being sort of forced into using despite rising prices? Are we going to see more discounting, do you think? Yes, there's a massive amount of discounting going on. And, you know, particularly if you look at the uh, the grocery sector, something like 40% of all of the groceries that people are buying are actually on discount. So there's a lot of discounting on people being drawn to that. They're choosing those those lines. Uh, We had those inflation figures out. The government's, uh, uh, the ONS's... uh, inflation figures and they actually made very very clear that it was that supermarket discounting that was the main explanation for inflation coming down a bit so i think when we get to the the april figures that will include easter then undoubtedly they will be better than march and easter will be a, a significant part of that and also you know that the royal weddings not it's not going to be the, the sort of make or break for uk retailing this year but it's going to contribute a little bit to perhaps a temporary feel-good factor which may help to improve things at least for the month of april although of course you know all those underlying basics are still really really difficult and Zoe how much is there sort of structural change going on as well here I mean I mean you you talked about Obbins which is presumably suffering from um, supermarkets selling more wine than they used to and that we've also seen bookshops haven't we and and music retailers suffering because things are going online there's there's obviously sort of structural change going on as well is there at the same time as this as this this downturn yeah definitely I mean there's probably two key trends here we're seeing the the growing strengths of the supermarkets but also the internet and within that we've also got supermarkets growing on the internet and I think that's a situation that makes it very hard for possibly smaller for smaller high street retailers to compete in that environment when things were good I think there was enough growth in the market for everyone but without that growth people are under pressure Uh, so what we're seeing now even the supermarkets are hurting now and we'll find out what the boss of Tesco thinks about the year ahead and I think uh, a lot of retailers will, will take their cue from that. 
the the internet does offer opportunities of course for smaller businesses and smaller retailers because particularly for for people who are selling specialist things it can open up a big national and even global market to them that wasn't there before so it's not it's not all bad news but certainly you know we do figures within our our monthly figures we do figures for online retailing specifically and that grew by seven and a half percent compared with a year earlier which on the one hand tells you that yes there's still a whole load of structural growth there which is continuing with online but actually that was the weakest growth figure in the three years or so that we've been doing those online figures separately so that also also tells you at the same time that online retailing, of course, is not immune from all those difficulties that retailing as a whole faces in terms of how confident customers are and how willing they are to spend. And Richard, how concerned are your members, do you think, about, about the possibility of interest rates going up? I mean, you know, the city was expecting a May rise. They've now put it back to the summer. But, you know, would, would that have a serious effect, do you think? We don't want interest rates to go up because, of course, you've got this balance between inflation, which, which has been rising, but at the same time, all that stuff about weak consumer confidence businesses, including retailers, being under lots and lots of pressure. I think uh, it's very clear that the causes of inflation are not going to be tackled by an interest rate rise because they are about rising global commodities. They're about uh, the value of the the pound and they're not about excessive demand. So if interest rates go up, uh, what you'll do is you'll harm businesses, you'll uh, slow recovery, but you won't actually tackle inflation. So I think we definitely don't don't need an, an interest rate rise anytime soon. And I'm really glad that the inflation figure, the most recent one, has come down because I think that is uh, removing a, a large part of the case for an immediate rise. And Zoe, maybe we should um, maybe we should end with some good news. There must there must be firms, are there, that are out there that are doing well? Which retailers are, are managing to sort of profit from this environment? Well, I think, you know, as, as Richard said, you know, internet is still a good place to be. We had some uh, fantastic figures from the online fashion retailer ASOS uh, this week. Their sales are up 70%. I mean, uh, that... People thought that you know shopping for clothing on the internet was never going to work, but um, ASOS has exploded that model. They've got videos online where you can look at the model on the catwalk, and uh, you know young women have really responded to that. I think also young fashion in general is a good place to be. Uh, we also had good figures from uh, the Spanish chain Mango, and that was also true of JD Sports, which possibly is aimed more at young men, uh, and they're very fa- fashion conscious young men buying trainers and hoodies. I mean, that market is is still reasonably buoyant. I suppose uh, the caveat is that, you know, we've got rising youth unemployment and uh, the question is, uh, how long can that last? When it comes to jobs, of course, retail is the place that's most likely to be able to create new jobs. Certainly, you know, if you look at the the experience of the last 12 months or so, and we do figures on this as well now, you see that uh, retail has, despite all the difficulties, continued to create jobs year on year. And of course, when, you know, the Prime Minister was talking at the start of the year at his job summit about where new jobs were going to come from, and something like 80% of all the, the jobs that were announced at that event were actually retail jobs. So there's tremendous potential from the retail sector and so I think what we need is particularly in these difficult times uh, we need the government to recognise that and to back it up by not piling on new costs and burdens which will stifle retail's ability to grow and to invest and to create jobs and actually to make good on some of these pledges that we've heard again recently about actually rolling back on some of the regulatory burdens that are in place. 
Now, it's been called a shot across the bowels for the Obama administration, which is still wrestling with Congress over the federal budget. This week, ratings agency Standard & Poor's warned that there was a one in three chance that it would downgrade US sovereign debt. Nils Prattley, our financial editor, is here. Nils, what's the significance of this and how alarmed should we be? Well, I think you've got to, got to um, preface any discussion by sort of pointing out that the rating agencies are these uh, numbskulls who slap AAA ratings on um, <laughs> all the crud and that um, uh, the existence of the crud is part of the reason why such a large hole has been ripped in the balance sheet of America. That said, you know, people still do pay attention to uh, rating agencies. It is significant. The optimistic interpretation, I would say, is that this is a shot of the a shot across the bows that will be heeded. I mean, I think, the, you know, the, the, that I think is probably why the market reaction was actually quite, quite calm on the day and has been subsequently. You know, people assume that uh, the Republicans and Democrats will come to some sort of agreement and the plan um, will be concocted that will satisfy S&P and that the downgrade will not materialise, i.e. that the two in three chance will actually prevail. I think there may that may be optimistic because the sort of the gap between the Republicans and the Democrats seems to be pretty huge, and there's only about uh, eighteen months to go until an election, and you know a deadline is looming. I think probably the smart bet to make is probably that something will be some sort of deal will, will, will be done that will prevent a downgrade, but actually you know we'll revisit this issue probably after the election. And what about the dollar? I mean, wouldn't people be selling the dollar like mad at the moment if, if it wasn't that the euro? zone was in such crisis i mean could the, could the dollar come under threat as the world's reserve currency do you think if people start to be seriously concerned about the deficit in, in the future well it could but again you know the, the critical word there is the future i think you know at the moment there are there are bigger worries in the world notably in in the eurozone and of course you know if chinese growth were to slow i think it would see the sort of same behavior um occur meaning you know a rush towards the dollar as, as a safe haven currency mm, a safer haven safer yeah. <laughs> yeah fair point yeah and and was george, george osborne right do you think yesterday he, he seized on this to say you know you see we're doing the right thing with our, our very aggressive you know tackling the approach of tackling the budget is, 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 is that fair do you think well, it's a cheap, cheap political point to make. I think, you know, Osborne has the mood of the markets with him at the moment. I think, you know, it will be seem to be a silly thing to say if if uh, UK GDP comes in uh, very low, which is the point Ed Balls is making in our paper this morning. I think all bets are off if that happens. You know, great austerity is great as long as you get growth alongside it. Um, and that's that's the it's a two part bet, isn't it? And if the growth doesn't materialise, the austerity program or the wisdom of it is is open to question. Mm. Indeed. Nils Prattley, thank you very much. Now, the financial crisis that is ravaging the high street is also playing havoc with another sector of the economy, charities and voluntary groups. They've been tasked as part of David Cameron's Big Society campaign with rejuvenating Britain's social welfare, but many are now struggling to survive. Councils have grown increasingly reliant on the specialised skills of a range of charities to provide public services, but as budgets are cut, the so-called third sector is facing huge strains. The editor of Society Guardian is Patrick Butler. Charities have been hit particularly badly by the recession for two reasons. One, well, mainly it's to do with their funding. The the last figures we have, which I think for 2008-09, there were 171,000 charitable organisations in the UK. Collectively, their income is around £35 billion pounds. Now that income started growing quite rapidly over at, uh, about 10 years ago in 2001 and the reason for that was that many charities we're talking about uh, you know a 5 to 10,000 out of that 171,000 started to deliver much more public services. So in other words they were funded by the state. 
many charities have grown rapidly on the back of that taxpayer funding. Um, and uh, because of the spending cuts, we're now seeing that taxpayer funding receding and that's hitting charities particularly hard. The other problem for charities is that the recession is hitting ordinary individuals. So donations, individual donations are going down. Corporate donations from businesses are going down. So it's what many in the sector are, uh, are calling a perfect storm. Income is going down. Demands on their services are going up. Patrick Butler there of Society Guardian. Now, I'm joined in the studio by Maggie Jones, the Chief Executive of Children England, an umbrella group of children's charities, and alongside her, Anna Chiara Markandali of Cambridge Associates. Maggie Jones, let's begin with you. Do you recognise the perfect storm facing charities as laid out there by Patrick Butler? Yes, absolutely. Um, it affects, certainly affects our members in exactly the way that Patrick described. I think the other thing to factor in, in terms of looking forward to the future, is there's a kind of triple whammy. So not only is there a decrease in funding from every available source at the same time as rising need because of the impact of, of the other problems within the economy, particularly on vulnerable children, young people and families, but the difficulties faced by statutory funders in terms of the massive reorganisation the current government um, has begun means that there's there's huge insecurity and lack of forward planning. So we did a survey of our members in the third week of March and um, 60% of them had no notion yet how much money they were going to get in the financial year beginning on the 1st of April. So at the same time as facing these huge changes, the ability to plan ahead is, is very, very compromised. And what sort of financial state was the charity sector in before before the crisis of 2008? I mean, well, because there had been by the previous government quite a long-standing, more or less 10-year period of investment in public services, some of that investment had come to charitable organisations, either directly in order to pump prime innovative ways of dealing, for instance, with families with complex problems, where a number of our bigger members worked closely with the government to develop some really good ways of working, which have been evaluated now and are being rolled out through local authority services. And also also in the kind of funding that's provided by local commissioners, both the health service and local authorities, um, where in order to develop more responsive local models of, of public service, local charities have been increasingly involved together with statutory partners in developing that. And of course, all of that is now being pulled back because mm. of the public sector cuts. Mm. And of course, this year is only the beginning of a three-year cycle of cuts. So it's pretty bad now, but set to get worse. Anna Kiara, is there a sense that charities didn't prepare themselves for, for a downturn? What, what state was the sector in, do you think, before the crash? And, and were they just expecting the good times to keep on rolling, the money to keep coming in? I don't think so at all. And actually, what the, the side that we we see is actually the side from the the demands that come to the charitable trusts who fund um, charities. Mm. And that, that, that sort of demand has been because they knew that the investment income, because of what had happened in 2008, before actually the cuts, mm. they knew that that investment income wasn't going to be stable throughout time. They'd actually budgeted to be careful because they knew that the funding was, it can't be, it can't be stable throughout time because it depends on capital markets and capital markets are difficult. And so actually this comes after a financial crisis in which the, what, the giving that came from charitable trusts, which ultimately give, comes from capital markets, had been curtailed. So, you know, maybe Maggie was talking about a triple triple whammy, but it's a 
quadruple whammy. Um, So it's actually um, the funding that is available um, really depends on what is on offer from capital markets. Um, And what is on offer from capital markets is prospectively not that exciting because of the state of the economy and actually the fact that a lot of assets are fully priced and can we really expect to extract a lot of return out of them? Well, maybe not. And so how are we going to really fund things going forward? And so actually some of the trusts that may have been endowed 100 years ago or, or whatever are facing some very, very difficult decisions now, are they? Because they've got these these huge demands coming in from charities saying, you know, our funding's being cut. Well, well some, of, some of the institutions that we work with are um, really th- trying to think about what is, what is their mission. Mm-hmm. And what most of them, their mission is we've existed for a very long time. We fund very important things. Mm-hmm. And we want to make sure that we can fund these throughout time. So one of the things they're really concerned about is the fact that prices are going up. And if prices are going up, um, and that's inflation, inflation is going to eat into the capital that we have. So really, the things that we can buy with this capital are going to not are not going to be the same. And some institutions are asking themselves the question of, well, maybe because of the severity of the crisis, we should reconsider our existing in perpetuity. Maybe we should give more. Well, the problem of giving more now, so raising the spending rate, means that you're really cheating future generations because you're reducing the pot of capital which is available. And so if you even if you take up spending rates in the future, you are actually going to be able to fund less things in the future. And so it's a, it's a difficult, difficult trade-off. They're hearing, um, and what we hear is, we need to make sure that our, at least our um, level of contributions remains stable because the hole on the public side is so large. So it's actually an existential crisis for some of these charitable trusts. They have, they're really having to think about, you know, their, their future. Absolutely, absolutely, because they, they realize that many of the, many of the causes that they fund are are facing true crises, and so they ask themselves, what is our role? How how can we really do this? Um, but it is important for them then to ask themselves the question, you know, do we want to try to solve this problem now? A lot of them really honestly can't because there's not the same size of capital. I mean, we can't kid ourselves that not even if we th- pretend to think that a lot of these institutions might spend a whole lot more or even spend themselves down, the, the hole is just too big. And Maggie, have some kinds of charity, I know you've done some research on your own, um, on the children's sector, have some types of charities fared better than others, do you think? Um, well, some have fared less worse, shall we, shall we put yes. it that way? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think all types of charities are feeling the pinch, really. In- interestingly, um, building on what Anne was saying, the charities that are feeling less worried about their future are those that depend the less, the least, on public sector funding. Mm-hmm. So those that, that have got a kind of portfolio of funding, of which state funding is very small, are the ones that are the most confident about the future and the most confident about being able to sustain their services and carry on supporting their service users. But I, in our, certainly in our survey, what we are finding, and this is also reflected in um, the NCVO work on, gen, on charities in general, is that it's the kind of early intervention type services, sure start, youth work, family support for families who are at the beginning of a crisis or are just facing a real problem. They've had a bereavement or whatever. So those early type intervention services are the ones that are being cut because state funders are feel they have to put their money into the places where the crises are happening right now. 
And of course, given the rest of what's happening in our social and economic environment, all that's doing is storing up big, expensive problems for the future. There is a danger that's a false economy, presumably, that you then end up picking things up much further down the line when the the situation is much worse. Well, and the fact of the matter is that has a real impact on our workforce. I mean, I know even in my own personal friendship circle, three people who are having to give up work, two to look after young children because the voluntary organisation who did some of that for them is closing, and one to look after an older person in their family because of the withdrawal of voluntary and statutory support to older people in terms of day centres and home care support. So that is going to actually impact on the workforce and on the capacity of people to participate in work and to earn money and get off benefits, etc. All of those other things that the coalition government is clear it wants to happen. The, the, resort, the actual services provided, particularly at a, a lower level of need, actually support that economic engagement. And that, that kind of support is being pulled away. Mm. It's really important, particularly for low-wage individuals. Anna Chiara, when charities are thinking about how to invest to, to try and you know, ameliorate the, the, the circumstances they're facing, do they have extra pressures that presumably they have to try and not only to, to get a, a return to fund what they're doing, but also to invest ethically? I mean, it, it must be, it's quite difficult at, the, at this point, isn't it? It, it? it is, it is. And a, a lot of them ask themselves exactly that question. And you know, what to do with the portfolio of assets that they have, mm-hmm. try to extract a sustainable investment return that is compatible with the, the needs that they need to support, one, and is compatible with the mission that they're trying to pursue. Mm. Two, means that they need, they have constraints in what they can do. And what the, one of the problems that a lot of the smaller charities face is that the level of expertise that they have on, on an investment committee, if they have an investment committee, is, uh, is typically voluntary. So they might get really lucky and they might have somebody who understands um, the investment world and can avoid them being taken advantage of, quite frankly. Sometimes they can be taken advantage of and can guide the the charity through these these decisions but a lot of them don't and so it's a question of what type of what, t- what type of expertise do charities have to actually navigate through this? Um, the, the Charity Commission, interestingly, has um, actually put out a document um, in February in, cons- in consultation because they're trying to create a framework for um, for trustees to make better decision-making, which is absolutely great because I think on ethical investing in particular, and there's a lot of names around this, mission-driven investing, ethical investing, mixed-purpose investing. Sometimes trustees freeze because they, they, they don't really know how how far can they go? Should they go? Are they contradicting their fiduciary duties? And so uh, better guidance is um, is absolutely welcome. Mm-hmm. And we contributed to that consultation process, and the Charity Commission should put out a new framework shortly. And it, I think this is a question that a lot of trustees face, but it is within the problem of trying to solve that very difficult equation, which is, if I have some money, how do I invest that money in a way that provides that stability of returns that Maggie was talking about, doesn't cheat the future because I don't want to be eating into my capital and is and is actually consistent with who I am and what I'm trying to pursue as a mission. And that 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 sort of three those three things and the time horizon, because we were talking about 
some some charities have been around a very long time, know they need to be around for a very long time. Um, so, you know, how do I make myself last the distance in in a very stormy times? Those these are very difficult problems to solve. Okay, and I, I think this is um, perhaps we'll start with Maggie for this one, but I think this might you might both have things to say on on this one. We, we hear the argument in some quarters that that this the financial crisis will actually be good for charities because you know some of them have become bloated, they got you know distracted from their core purpose, you know, and, and maybe a cut in funding will force them to sort of focus and and raise more money through donations and and you know hit targets better and so on is there any merit to that argument do you think you know the the times were good and the money was flowing and people got you know a bit bit fat around the edges (laughs) Um, uh, that isn't anything that I actually recognize I have to say I'm I'm primarily because charitable organizations because of some of the the long-term insecurities that they face in raising money so This kind of cuts thing isn't new in the sense that most charitable organisations exist on short term, Mm. by which I mean well below five years, quite often only one, three years if you're lucky, funding packages. And that in and of itself prevents you from getting a bloated, because you just don't ever get the chance to build up enough capital to invest in all of the nice extra things that you might like to have. So most of our charities are extremely lean. They don't have big they don't have R&D, they don't, you know, they don't have kind of those kinds of things which a lot of really good businesses actually invest in because they know it's important for their long-term future and their ability to manage the changes that will come and the demands of the future. Most of my members just don't have that at all. But, but you're absolutely right that what the cuts are doing are making people focus down really hard on their mission and on the parts of their service that they really the parts of what they do that they really believe are the very at the very core so and i think that it, it that isn't just becoming an economic choice it's actually about then looking at what is the relationship they then want to have with their funder and particularly with a state funder do they want to deliver services to disabled children that are so pared down mm. that have all of the quality indicators stripped out of them? Is that really what they came into being to do? Or are they better cutting their losses and delivering a much smaller, focused, high-quality service that they know that they can sustain and where they absolutely know the disabled children will get the very best possible service? So it is actually changing people's perception of why they're here and how their services work alongside state services. And many of our people are choosing not to chase the contract anymore because that they cannot they see that that is not necessarily in the best interests of their service users others other charitable organizations will scale up and will manage to match the big private sector organizations who are coming into the field to deliver social care and they will be able to do that they will operate like private businesses and they will compete with private businesses but what I think will happen is there will be a much clearer divide between those two sets of charitable organisations. Anna Kiara, do you think, was, was there sort of fat or, or, you know, lack of organisation or lack of focus in the sector b- before the crisis? I'm, I'm going to shift because in terms of investment returns, because sure. that's the part I can of talk course. more credibly uh, about. You know, one can argue that in the good old times um, prior 2008, when the investment returns were rolling in and everything was fun, um, you can you can argue that some investors just were investors who who were trying to make money out of 
their pot so that they could distribute more didn't pay enough attention to the risks that were around. Um, like all investors, of course. Like all investors. Yeah. And, and that now everybody is particularly concerned about the fact that, well, actually, you can lose money, and therefore I will risk less. The problem of that attitude is that you have stable funding needs. So now that there's a time in which you could argue that you should be investing more because the needs are greater. You're not going to because you've been recently burned. So what this says is actually that you lack a long-term strategy. Um, and so and we're going back to the, the problem of what expertise do you have? So because we're going to have economic cycles, and the economic cycles lately have been rather violent, um, you have to make sure that you don't get buffeted in one direction or the other because actually the needs at your door are stable or growing. And so if, if you're going to pull back at the wrong time or risk more at the wrong time, uh, what you can actually give away will suffer. So I, I think, you know, this, the up and downs need to be navigated really carefully. And um, final question, Maggie, I see from your survey that, that um, 60% of charities or only 60% of charities expect to be in business in your sector in five years' time. Is, is, does that seem like a true picture to you? Is, is that what you expect to happen? That's obviously the fears of the charities themselves. Yes. I, I mean, it's quite interesting that in the survey, 94% were pretty sure they'd still be open in six months' time, but that actually dropped to 60% over the five-year period. And that's because we know that bad though it is at the moment, and I think that the cuts have been front-loaded. Nevertheless, there are two, maybe even three more years of reductions to come. And um, and that, plus a very different way of, a set of different ways of purchasing social care services. So things like payment by results, spot purchasing, will make it extremely difficult for charities to operate in the way they would wish to operate in terms of good terms and conditions for staff, stability of relationships with vulnerable service users. And so people will start to make choices again about what kind of marketplace they want to be in, in terms of serving the needs of those people in their communities. So I think, yes, I think we will see a reduction in um, the number of charities, particularly serving children um, in the in the years to come. Okay, well, that's all we have time for this week. There's more on this subject on our website at societyguardian.co.uk. My thanks to Anna Chiara Markandali and Maggie Jones. The producer was Phil Maynard. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.